0: Think of a scene, a snowman melting or splashing water into a hot pan. Think of the sounds or sights that go with that image and you have the beginning of a micro story. My guest today writes micro stories as well as short stories and a novel. She's going to discuss her writing and how culture can be both the same and very different from our own experiences. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 187.
1: Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy
0: is free, but the food is on you. return. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. My guest today is Lauka, which is her preferred uh, form of address, and she is a European writer, author of micro-stories inspired by everyday life. She also has a novel, an historical novel, which draws inspiration from Chinese history And her adventures across China. Her writing also reflects her interest in foreign languages and crossing cultures. She is also well traveled. Lauka does have politics in her background, including a 2019 campaign as a candidate for the European Parliament, but politics is not on the table today. Food and fiction are our courses, so to speak. Hello, Laka. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Dan.
0: I'm very excited. Me too, because we're we're talking about something a little bit unusual for this show, and that is, well, I'm going to say short stories, and but I, I know that that's not exactly right, but I want you to make a correction. So what are we talking about? And then give us a little bit of introduction about you uh, mm-hmm. and, and how, and, and what this means to you.
1: Okay. Uh, indeed. Uh, short stories are uh, usually um, several, a four pages long, a six, seven, eight, it could be longer. Uh, Why I am uh, uh, mainly an author of what I call micro stories, uh, And micro stories are much shorter stories. Um, For me, there could be anything between 300, 400 to 600 characters, even though it's not set in stone, which means that if I'm writing something and it's longer than 600 words, it's fine. But it's not a long story, several pages long. This is what I mean. Um, The shortness means that, of course, uh, uh, you usually have a different structure. You have uh, less characters involved, uh, maybe less description. uh, And what I like is always to have a self-contained story that in the end always have a closure. And um, yes, this is what uh, I publish on my website twice per month, per month. Um, yeah. Besides that, I am also an author of a novel, but maybe we we'll come back to that to later. I think you maybe asked about short stories and micro
0: stories. Well, yeah. So the thing that was interesting to me is micro stories, and there's a, a, a,
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's a forced craft necessary when when. When you when you have a goal of some minimization, I'm inventing words of of, of characters or words, then it's it's not like writing a thousand-page book where mm-hmm. you can really get into stuff, and that's fine. But when when brevity is kind of the the, the first thing of order, it, it changes the craft of the thing, and so. Uh, I find that interesting, and so we, if you look at at poets like E.E. E. Cummings was probably the most famous poet of of and there is and there's a name for that, but there's just the, the minimalist. Mm-hmm. So um, that it's an interesting on several levels. One, it's interesting to read because the reader the reader always brings her own experience to what she's reading. That just happens mm-hmm. it's just that's yeah. part of that's part of the reading process. You write a yeah. story, but it's only half done until the reader reads it and then makes mm-hmm. that story come alive, and everybody yeah. makes a different story, which is really a, a amazing thing about writing. But when mm-hmm. you do a minimalist thing, now the reader is adding a lot more color mm-hmm. to that story, and that's still very interesting but now it's it 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 becomes i think the challenge for the writer so Mm -hmm.
1: um,
0: so stories do narratives we can call them narratives narratives do a lot of things narratives Mm -hmm. can 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 convey very very potent emotions can convey truths or falsities because you can be an unreliable narrator and that because that becomes fun um So let's talk a little bit. First of all, I I think what's interesting is you're writing, as I read it, in a foreign language.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Now, that's kind of a big deal because I don't think I, well, I can't write in a foreign language. I can speak a few of them, and maybe I can write basic sentences and give instructions, but Mm -hmm. I can't write a story. So tell me about the process of writing in a foreign language. Is there... How, how does your thinking change? Do you have to think in English mm-hmm. to write language? What does that mean?
1: Um, well, first of all, for me, writing in English allows me to have a little bit of uh, distance between what I write and myself. Of course, so, as a writer, you always bring your own experiences to your stories. So, uh, but at the same time, I do not want to write about myself. And writing a foreign language, of course, helps me keep this distance. Uh, I also love languages. And for me, it's also an occasion, actually, to keep practicing my languages. Because I live in Germany. I work in a German environment. I have uh, no chances, basically, during my daily work to use English. And so um, I think this is a very good option to use my language uh, skills uh, um, outside of my daily job. Um, and, of course, with English, you can reach many more people. Um, my mother tongue is Italian, and, of course, I can speak German, but uh, German is spoken basically only in Germany, and Italian is spoken only in Italy. So uh, it would be quite restrictive as an audience, um, while English allows me really to reach much wider because we're not only talking about the countries, so where we're... English is not the tongue, but also many others uh, where English is at least the second language or a very well-known languages. So I think about India or um I don't know uh, Hong Kong uh, uh, and other countries. So, so um this is why I yeah, I write in English. And I used English actually um since I left Italy it was over 20 years ago. I mean I, I lived more than half of my life outside Italy and English was for a long time actually almost my main language.
0: So there's one other country that I because it's on your website you lived in China do you speak speak Chinese?
1: I do speak Chinese yes I went to China in 96 because I wanted to study Chinese and uh, I did and then I think for about 10 years of my life I really um uh, yeah was busy with China, either studying China, living in china, uh doing things with china, and um, that was a very intense uh, time of my life um, and very rewarding and I think actually I studied there to read in English because the reading material there was basically only Chinese and some english and as I couldn't find anything else I couldn't find anything in Italian, then uh, my language skills really improved when I was in China. <laughs>
0: Can you write in Chinese?
1: I can write in Chinese with a computer, definitely, but it's difficult to write by hand. That's very challenging. And I do write, you know, like a child. So I wouldn't, um, definitely, would not write a story or a book in Chinese, no.
0: So there's a few things I think are interesting. And one of the things, and since I, I don't really know this, and I'm curious if there, what your answer is, I don't think that there is a the answer, but there is your experience answer. And that is, when when you're reading a narrative in German or English or Italian or Chinese, is does the structure of the story change based on how the language as a tool is used to convey information?
1: There is definitely another kind of sensibility uh, when I read, um, uh, you know, Asian authors, in particular I read a lot of uh, Japanese authors, uh, but also Chinese, Taiwan, um, the, the, the view of the world is different, uh, so the, the, the feelings that they express in are also different, uh, and therefore the structure is not like very often. In American novels, let's say, when you go to a creative course, you know they always tell you, oh, you must have this character arch and you must have, um, you know, put your hero in a difficult position. Uh, and, you know, there are different beats. Um, of course, there is also a structure in other countries, in other languages, uh, but you can really see and feel the difference. So if I read, for example, a French novel also, you know, sometimes I don't see the character arch. You know, it's just, just somebody staying there and t- talking, some, telling something and there is no closure at the end. And this is also very often with uh, um, uh, with stories in Asia. And uh, yeah, I think it would be more difficult to find that kind of feelings in Western novels, uh, in America and the UK and so on. And this is why I'm very attracted actually to, to those stories. So.
0: Do narratives in those other countries serve now this is assuming a lot. Let's let so let's let me make the assertion first that short stories and we can think about like, um uh, of course uh, O. Henry's um, The Gift of the Magi, maybe is one of the most popular short stories ever. That does have some of the expected uh storyline there's Mm -hmm. this there's the there's this want to do something nice by two different people both for the other one and and this unexpected twist at the end Mm -hmm. but everyone so now everyone knows the story and it's a real. it's a good story um Mm -hmm. it's a fun story it's very informing about what what does what does a gift really mean? What does generosity really mean? But is that a uniquely American slash English kind of a narrative? Would the gift of the magi even exist in China or Germany or Italy? And is that big and I, I don't know. It, could you find that narrative in a foreign language literature? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, obviously I have not read all the of narrative course. which is available. So what I was talking about is my uh my my thinking, my sensations, how I, I take this narrative. Um and um uh, for sure, because English is also I mean if somebody writes it might be and if the person if the author knows english it's very likely of course that the person will also read novels uh, from uh, uh, the western world let's say and they might include also some characteristics from from those uh, from those uh, uh yeah, um types of uh, of writing of narrative um but as i said to me you you read a chinese book a japanese book you feel it's different. It's, it's not exactly the same as uh, when you read a novel um, from the US and the UK. And as I said, it's a very general feeling. And of course, there are always exceptions. Um, but if you think also about the novel from uh, um, the Japanese writer, I'm sorry, I'm very bad with names, uh, who won the Nobel Prize. Uh, the Remain, remaining of the Day, I think it's called. remaining of the Day. Exactly, and there is also a movie. The, don't you think that already there, there is another kind of feeling? Uh, you do have a structure, of course, uh, but it seems like, you know, there is no real resolution at the end. There is—they they, just—they are telling a story. They are telling a story how somebody lives the story, this, uh, this, an event, or several events. But there is no big climax. I feel. Like very often is the case uh, with other types of literature.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Most English readers, most uh, readers of American uh, novels, can can identify a half a dozen immediately authors who follow a very predictable pattern. So mm-hmm. Grisham, Stephen King, although he each of them have a few things that change, but we sort of there, there's kind of a comfort in mm-hmm. the expected. Here's the thing. Here's the conflict. Here's the climax. Here's the here's the resolution. And so it's it's sort of satisfying to get all that. And murder mysteries usually fulfill that the best because yeah. you know plus it's the puzzle of figuring out who did it. Um, but then there's there's some standouts that don't follow that at all. Mm-hmm. This is probably a harder question, but how do either micro stories, short stories, novels how this is tough, how do they inform the reader about a worldview? Is that even Is that even the right question? Is worldview too much? Maybe it's how they inform the reader about basic humanity.
1: Well, if you're writing a story from the character point of view, when the character is uh, um, a foreigner, basically, uh, so a a Chinese or Japanese or French or German, they will, of course, have the worldview of that country, of that culture. And it's already that that makes the book different. You know, for example, in China, there is this concept of losing face, uh, and it's very typical. I mean, uh, you are not supposed to do certain things uh, in society because otherwise you lose face. Uh, and this is a concept that is very common in Asian countries, but it's not so common in Western countries. And when you read a book from that area, um, you will have this concept. You, you don't even have to explain this concept because everybody knows it in that, in that culture. And, uh this is how actually then uh, readers are informed about the world view
0: would you say that the idea of losing face would be something we understand as honor uh no I don't I, I, I don't think it has the same meaning. Honor
1: has to me you know it's let's say a higher value well losing face could be really something very commonplace a very uh very simple um uh let me see if i can find a, a a good example um if you are in a meeting and somebody corrects uh corrects you uh for a mistake whatever it is you are losing face in front of the others.
0: So it sounds like maybe it's more of a um, blood comes up in your face. It's a it's a moment of embarrassment, public embarrassment.
1: Could be public embarrassment, but it doesn't have to be public. You know, it's uh, um, yeah. So I, I don't I don't have so many examples right now. That's that's okay. up in my head really uh, it's an interesting concept definitely that um yeah you wouldn't you would not see in uh, in Western books. Not not in that form.
0: I'm just thinking about that. It's just yes. it, yeah, it's I know because I I I used to read a lot of fiction, I read now mostly nonfiction and there's that's fine. There's a different kind of narrative. Um mm-hmm. Even with some of the Grisham King um, and Kuntz, maybe I don't read him, but um, I know the name. (laughs) Um, Is it possible to use your micro stories or your short stories or even your novel as as a tool to, you know, tool might be a hard word, wrong word, as a way to sort of show the world you want to create and have the reader participate in? your your vision in this particular story of what a world could look like?
1: I think so, of course. So this is what a story does. If I think also about, the you know, some micro-stories that I wrote, uh, I don't know, there is one, for example, that takes place uh, around Christmas time. Uh, and, you know, there are Christmas markets uh, and uh, Glühwein, uh, which is, uh, you know, um uh, red wine, uh, hot red wine uh, that is typically drunk uh, during the season. Um, I mean, definitely something very German, or at least German-speaking countries. Uh, And before, through the stories, of course, create a world where you can see where where it comes from. I mean, the culture is always included in the story. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, a little bit. I think it's I think that's the kind of a question that has an ongoing answer, and the more mm-hmm. you more information you get, the more the answer grows and mm-hmm. uh, but I like the, I think those kinds of answers are fun answers to have because mm-hmm. just like reading the narrative the the listener now can sort of go and make that answer more his or her own because of what it is that they're reading
1: It's very interesting what you said at the beginning that uh with a micro story, the reader is uh, must put much more imagination or they must create much more from the side. I never thought in that perspective. Um, but to me, micro stories is just like a hint of a uh, of life and where a person may or may not recognize himself or self. And therefore um, to me actually opens opens another word and and, and to me, it's interesting, actually, you know, that you have to create so much more after instead that the author gives you everything prepared and gives you the story from A B, uh, until Z.
0: Now, there is now I know that famous maxim that women don't like Hemingway. And I don't know if that's true. I've met a few women who do, but... Um, mm-hmm along with all of his novels, Hemingway wrote a series of short stories called the Nick Adams stories and take place uh, near an area where I grew up in Northern Michigan. And Mm -hmm. um, he also was pretty famous for really, really cutting down what I think he invented the iceberg effect where you show a little bit, but behind that, there's all this informed stuff. And And so as you as one starts reading the Nick Adams stories, and it's about Nick, who's fishing on the freshwater lakes in northern Michigan, which if you're lucky, they're abundant with fish. If you're not lucky, you just get mosquitoes. Um, But it's really interesting to sort of read that. And as a a kid who fished on lakes like that, like, oh, man, I sort of see me in Nick. I understand when he's writing it like a sentence about fishing gear if you know about fishing gear that's pages and pages of content that you fill in yeah and so when you write a story you send me a story about about food and everybody who eats and that's pretty much everyone is going to have his or her own version of what it means to have this food on the table and this dialogue and this exchange with these people changes Mm -hmm. with everybody and that's I I think that's a fascinating thing about reading and writing Mm -hmm. and when we can then experience through in some ways word choice, in some ways word pattern and narrative pattern how that dinner would happen in say boston or naples or frankfurt or beijing it's like wow <laughs> it's it's kind of a geeky moment but i i think it's kind of cool mhm um yes also uh, the
1: story was inspired by um uh by a document documentary that i watched about uh, a michelin chef and um I actually, how can I say? I actually um, united, you know, this this figure of this this woman, who is also a writer by chance, who is looking for inspiration, and maybe you know, it was me a little bit, and then decides to go to a, a Michelin restaurant in order to um, uh, to have a wonderful experience, a different experience that might blow her mind. And then we would, which will get inspiration from heaven, from or whatever. Um, And I thought it was funny. uh, And I'm also very fascinated by food in general. And uh, I think I also would like to have such an experience and see uh, what I come up with after that. yeah and food always plays a role actually in uh, in stories and very often actually, when you go to creative writers, they even tell you, Oh, when somebody is there, you have to in, in your story, people have to do something, so let them eat and then explain exactly what they're eating so that people can imagine and then can have a taste of the of the flavor and so on so food definitely plays a big role in writing
0: and there's a there's a few well, a couple of many, but I'm thinking like Water for Chocolate was a fantastic book and movie about food and life and narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's move from short stories a bit and tell me about some of the either interesting or not interesting food you came across in China. Were you um, in, in mainland, inland, or coastal?
1: I was uh, always on the coast, so I was uh, uh, basically the first three years around. Uh, um, it, it was it was not a big city for uh, you know Chinese standards. Let's say uh, it was a city called first Fuzhou and then Ningbo, so southern of Shanghai. And then I stayed three years in Guangzhou, which is a uh, uh, culinary capital of China, where you can find any type of food. Uh, And actually Chinese say that Guangzhou people eat everything with uh, four, uh, two or four legs except a table because they would really eat everything. Um, Weird things that I've eaten in China, Um, I think the worst things were uh, some kind of blood. I think once I drank actually uh, snake blood, it's supposed to you know everything which is disgusting is supposed to be good for health so yeah, that was definitely one of them um uh, the esophagus of a duck um then i think a couple of times we had uh it was called uh, drunken shrimps where actually just shrimps were alive but they were drunk so they were really swimming in alcohol so when you they, they were still moving a little bit and eat them alive. That was also something that was not really pleasant um, and uh, well, of course, the occasional dog meat that happens yeah. um but I would say that this kind of food is is not the usual you know i was even i was uh, either invited it was maybe a company dinner. Or it was a guest and it was uh, you know special food which was offered to the guest but if we're talking about Chinese food in general they are very simple they, they eat mainly pork and chicken at least we're talking about the time I was there which was uh, let's say 96 until 2007 different years um, and lots of vegetables and before, to, until 2007, they were very used to have everything very fresh. You would go to the restaurant and they would have the fish still in the fish tank. And, you know, they would really take the fish out of the fish tank or a bath if it was a street restaurant. And they would cook it fresh, especially in Guangzhou where they really, really want to have fresh food. Mm, last time that I visited in 2012, I think it was in 2014, um, I think they had more and more fast food. So also it, Chinese style, but still things that have already been prepared, pre-cooked and they're ready to be eaten. So that they they lost a little bit this uh, this flavor of having uh, um, really fresh food. But otherwise, the cooking in China is so different. In different regions, you will have different tastes, uh, uh, you know, either very spicy or, or sweet or, or steamed, uh, Um, So it's very exciting
0: to go to China for food. Soups are good any time of the year. Good soup needs good stock. If you don't want to make your own stock, but you do want great soup, use Brodo Broth. Brodo makes their stocks the same way I do. That means the right way. Use my link. CulinaryLibertarian.com/slash/broth to check the selection of stocks they offer. They even have a vegan stock. Bobby Flay praises Brodo Broth. Use my link, CulinaryLibertarian.com/slash/broth to order or subscribe today. I, th- I think this question has a level of obviousness to it, and that is 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 the food choice based in part on the caste of the people who are making those choices. So is duck esophagus a delicacy or is it a thing you eat because nothing goes to waste?
1: Um, there are definitely some food which you would have only if you have a certain that or you can afford, for example, Avalon. Uh, Is something of a delicacy, and you know you wouldn't eat that every day. And I, I ate it really when it was a very fancy dinner. Um, but otherwise, if we're talking about you know either duck meat or you know beef or whatever, there's there's no much difference, I would say. Uh, there are some things that are delicacy and they're very expensive, but this is not something that you will find in normal restaurants.
0: Right. And so comparing, so where in Italy are you from, north or south?
1: From Torino, from the north actually. Okay.
0: Oh, man, truffles and risotto.
1: Yes, yes. And, and,
0: and um, oh, the, uh, the breadsticks, what are those things called? The, uh, oh. Meter long breadsticks, those things are fun to make um, i actually have <laughs> uh, I have a facebook friend who's in Torino um, okay. so comparing your so how does the food from Torino compare or contrast with the food in Germany, which is not too far away compared to you know, china oh
1: well, it's definitely not the same um, German food is uh to me, quite um, heavy. They have lots of meat, lots of uh, uh, um, potatoes, of course. Um, And I do think that, uh, I mean, it's it's still good. You still find very nice food, very nice dishes in in Germany. Um, But because of the weather, you know, they tend to be very heavy, And they usually cook with butter. So there is always uh, you know a fight between <laughs> my husband and I when we are cooking because he wants to use butter. And then no butter, please. And I want to use olive oil. Um and uh in Italy you definitely have more variety, at least this is my perception. Um and you have, of course, lots of uh, of vegetables. Uh I think probably also because they're more available. While in Germany, I think you have Less choice, so you have cabbage, red cabbage, green cabbage, mm. not very exciting. Usherous. Um, yeah, and um, and it's also the culture around food. Uh, um, and this is an interesting point because Italy and China they have something in common, which is the fact of eating and uh, well, food is important, and you eat in the family, you know? So, this uh, big family dinners, uh, especially during the holidays, uh, this is something very typical. You know, you have family and you go home and you eat with your family. Uh, while cooked food? Always cooked. I mean, I'm accustomed, even when I was living in Rome, now I'm married, um, uh, but even alone, I always cook my food. You know, at least once per day, I want to eat or meal. In China, it's sometimes even three warm meals per day, because usually they don't have like cold breakfast like many countries do. So they really eat a sort of uh, of lunch or dinner because they have noodles, or they have rice, they have porridge. Um, while in Germany, in the evening, I mean, a really traditional German family, they would have bread with uh, wurst, with sausages, and with cheese. And it's a little bit sad to me to so have that for dinner. And definitely not my tradition, but you can see how different it is. And also, um, yeah, well, I, I'm not sure whether the dinner you know, would be taken always together in the family in Germany or not. I mean, from, from the experience from my friends, yes, but that maybe this is not always the case, but I cannot speak for the whole Germans. Sure, of course not.
0: I would imagine that the access and abundance of fish, seafood was quite different because in Italy, no place really is more than 50 kilometers from the water, but in Germany, kind of landlocked. So was seafood something, do you eat seafood? Do you like fish? Uh,
1: Yes, but Germany has lots of lakes. So what you can often find here in Germany are, um, you know, lake fishes and they also have... uh, um smoked fish which is something that i appreciate a lot and i learned to eat it here because in italy we do not find
0: uh, smoked fish interesting yeah smoked. um i just smoked fish is good and there's once you learn how to use a smoker and how to how to brine or cure your fish well there's a lot of ways to go with that Um, and a lot of fun things to do and so then it can be cold smoked like a like a lox or a smoked salmon or hot smoked and <laughs> I problem.
1: don't, I don't smoke myself. The fish, I, I of buy course. The way smoked. <laughs> well, it's it's not for
0: everybody, and that's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. But um, I find it very pleasant. Actually, for lunch, uh, you know, if you don't have much time, you just have some uh, uh, some cold uh, uh, smoked fish, and it's nutritious,
0: it's healthy. And it's a lot good. of pickled things, I imagine.
1: There are pickled things, so yes, but uh, you buy them, you know, in the jar. Um, and it's your choice of whether whether you want to eat them.
0: Right. All right. So there's this. There's there's obviously different foods make different food choices, and that's pretty plain. Mm-hmm. As as your observations of living in, so in these different places, is there can you know? Can it be said that there is such a thing as a singular human experience?
1: Well, there is the human experience of appreciating food, which not everybody actually has it. I mean, I know there are some people that don't care about food.
0: It's amazing, and... isn't it? You're right, but it baffles me. <laughs>
1: yes, indeed. Um But I think... Uh, I think if, as a person, you are able to enjoy your food, uh, whether you cook it yourself or not, uh, I think it's a small pleasure in life that you will have it forever, and no matter where you are, you can always find something you like, because it's it's the experience and <coughs> sorry the taste. I think you are more open um, to try new things. Also, I think. It, it's also so exciting to live in different countries exactly for that reason, you know, because you get to know the culture of the country through the food. Um, and to me, this is a common human experience. Um, but some people don't appreciate it that much.
0: So even though dinner time in Italy and China seem to bear more similarity as a family community than it does to your observation i'm not saying this is a fact Mm -hmm. to your observation of of dinner time a community in germany i think the thing that crosses over and i'm maybe i'm forcing this between micro stories about people Mm -hmm. and dinner time as a family and it and you know, we we have the we we have the Sicilian joke about what what it means to be family, um, mm-hmm. with you know the Godfather and all this. But I think that there's take that uh, take the the joke part aside. I th- I think mostly you know, this is wholly uninformed, but I think the Italians sort of get the idea of family, which includes maybe neighbors, people in your community become family more than just. I think it's not blood-bound, is what I think I'm trying to say. The the, the narrative and the food are, can be used now to build a community. And Is that something you've noticed?
1: The narrative and the food can use, be used to build communities. Well, the food definitely, 100%. Because uh, I could not think of a better way to get people together as saying, okay, let's throw a party and everybody brings something to to eat. Or, you know, foreign uh, different nationalities living in another country and each bring bring a plate of uh, a dish of their own country. Uh, I think this is the easiest way to bind people together. Um, And narrative, of course, as well, if somebody reads this, if people read, uh, it can also bound people because it, it opens up your mind. You know, you will notice that actually some of the feelings that you're feeling as an American, as in Italian, are the same that a Chinese or a Japanese are feeling, um, because some things are universal. You know, the fact of worrying about your family, about your children, or your parents, or uh, you know, worry about um, uh, wanting to get married and being alone, or um, experiences difficulties in the, uh, in your job, um, the human experience are, are so common in so many countries. you know, when you take out the specificities, you know, of the food or of the, uh, um, I don't know, of the weather or uh, the habits that you have, but in the end, we are all the same, you know. And of course literature can help people see and find this common point that we have
0: together i agree with you i think that that's right so i think i, I want to ask you for now a lot of people may think oh, one day i want to write a book but a book feels like a big commitment a lot of work quite a challenge and it is those things <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work it's a big commitment it's a lot of challenge but for the people who want to write something as an expression of creativity without judgment of good or bad what encouragement can you offer people who, who maybe could write a micro story and it, because it can be anything to be about stubbing your toe on the bed when you got out this morning and now the whole day is ruined because the your routine is off because you just have to yeah everybody knows that it's like, oh man everything everything goes bad um yeah. how how would you advise somebody who wants to put a micro story on paper how do you start with that what's is there a right first step after what Hemingway said? You just type. What do you well, do? You?
1: First of all, I started writing my first story uh, exactly for this reason, because I needed to have a, a writing practice. I have a daily job which has nothing to do with writing, and I have to find you know, time to write. But the thing is, if you're not always continuously writing, you know, your inspiration might not be there. And before, when I told myself, okay, I want to write two micro stories per, per month, which is actually not a lot, um, I obliged myself every week to find time to write and sit down. And this is already the first thing, because no matter what you want to write, if you don't have that time commitment, then, you know, nothing will come out. And... And this is why also the form I chose for my writing practice, first of all, were micro stories because I said, okay, I am sure that if I sit down at least once per week or twice per week and write, then I can produce something that I can put out in the world. You know, because it's, it's not used also if you write, 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 then you never show it to the world. I mean, it's a pity, right? So, micro story is the perfect place, uh, in my opinion, to start. And the inspiration comes from everyday life. And if I sit and I have no idea what I want to write, because, you know, I might have a spot at 9 o'clock in the morning uh, on the day I'm not working in the office, and it might be that I have no inspiration. You know, I, I've, I've worked the whole day, the day before, and maybe in the beginning I went out or did something else that, you know, has nothing to do with writing. What I do is just sit and uh, list five things, That I've seen that week or experienced uh, or something I noticed. And then I see if there is anything which resonates. And I think, you know, 95%, 99% of the times, I do find a story. And because the story is short, you know, you don't have to worry too much about the structure or about how long it must be. Um, And you just write condensated and it's just a snapshot. And sometimes I take inspiration indeed from my life. I think once I went to buy a fish, and indeed there was another name of the fish, and I thought uh, uh, there was something I never eaten, and then I discovered that actually it's a fish that we always buy, it just had another name. And you know, I wrote a micro stories about that. Of course, it's not my story that story, but it was the inspiration for that.
0: I like the the snapshot idea. I think is a perfect example of what the micro story is 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 capturing it's just it's it's a moment it, it can be a long it could be a dinner like the like the writer at the Mission star restaurant it could be a long moment but it's just a snapshot of a thing and what I think is interesting is when you confine your view to a specific thing the possibility of observation increases because now you're not mm-hmm. seeing all of outside. You're focusing on uh, in my example <laughs> the snow covered hummingbird feeder that I just filled two days ago when there was no snow, okay. now there's snow. So there's and the hummingbirds are coming even though there's snow. So I'm happy for the hummingbirds that they have <laughs> something mm-hmm. to eat. But there's when, when you make just the one thing, then the observation becomes even more because you can really sort of dive into what are you looking at and that, and then getting something on a piece of paper, whatever the thing is, I think it's a, is a good moment for a micro story. Yes.
1: Yeah. And then you can play with the language. You can explore points of view and it could basically just be an exercise, uh, you know, and one day maybe from a micro story, you can up, end up writing a longer story or maybe even a book. You know, it's uh it's just a starting point.
0: Well it's yeah, it's also a good tool to learn vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So finding finding the right word, finding the right sentence structure to to, to be short yet potent. Which is really <laughs> isn't that what every writer wants? Even Tolstoy. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. He was dead when I so I don't have any idea. Yeah. Um Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or tastinganarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, I want to move into a different part of the I have a couple of uh, short answer questions here. Um okay. of the five flavors, bitter, yeah. sour, salty, sweet or umami, which one's your favorite?
1: Um Did you say spicy?
0: No, you didn't say spicy. Not spicy. Bitter, salty, sour, sweet or <coughs> umami. Sweet salty Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite food?
1: My favorite food, uh, pasta alla carbonara.
0: Ah, well, with uh, guanciale, of course. Exactly. Uh, what's your least favorite food?
1: Uh, cur- um, how do you say it? pumpkin? Pumpkin. Really? Yes, I don't like yes. the texture. I, 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 I love the color and. But the texture is awful, and the food is also not. Uh, the taste is also not for me. It's too too sweet.
0: Also. It's very sweet. Well, <clears throat> yeah. What noise do you love?
1: Oh, what noise I love! Um, the noise of my cat walking around the flat.
0: What noise do you hate?
1: Again, my cat, uh, when he starts <laughs> meowing uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning because he wants to eat.
0: Yeah. That's a cat. Yes. What gets you excited?
1: Um, obviously, my projects, everyday life, and uh, traveling. I love traveling. so Of course, uh, no matter where, it's always uh, a joy.
0: What turns you off?
1: Uh, commuting public transportation
0: what's your favorite food (laughs) indulgence
1: favorite food indulgence I think in the last few years if I indulge in something is chips
0: potato chips or french fries potato chips okay chips mean something different in different places of the world
1: Okay, right, so potato chips the one that you take from a, you know from the bag,
0: yeah well, that's yeah, well, that's a salty thing. I understand. I don't eat them much myself, but I can appreciate
1: yeah, I try not to buy them. I try not to eat those too much I
0: mean you know. no I, matter, I like healthy food, yeah, no matter how big the bag, it's usually just single serving
1: No, not for me i do, I don't go that far. <laughs>
0: How can people follow you and follow your work?
1: Yeah, so they can follow my work on my website, which is www.lauka.eu because I'm based in Europe. And there they will find my micro stories. They will find uh, um, also some information about my historical novel, Returning East, which I published in February this year. And they can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, To be honest, I don't have the whole name for this social media. But in any case, if you look for Lauka, either with underscore EU or Lauka author, you should be able to find me. I don't think there are so many of that.
0: Well, I will put a link to the website on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 187. Uh, So take a minute and tell me about your novel.
1: Yes, uh, my novel is an historical novel which takes uh, place. Uh, where do you think it takes place?
0: Probably Italy.
1: No, but almost. <laughs> no, it takes place in China and Hong Kong in 1954. So my protagonist actually travels from uh, from Marseille uh, with a mission to accomplish. He has to go to China, but he gets stranded in Hong Kong together with a friend that he met on the ship because he sailed from France. Uh, And there's different things happens and the journey uh, turns to be a discovery journey. So you will have to decide which kind of person he wants to be in the future and you will have to face also his past and from there grown up. So um, I had a couple of reviews that said it's sort of a coming of age novel I think that's a very American point of view, but it's not, uh, it's not completely wrong. And indeed, it's a journey of a person that um, explores also himself and discovers himself into two industry. Now,
0: 1954 is a very particular setting. What? Why did you choose 1954?
1: 1954 because uh, I the starting point the technical starting point was uh, uh, a website uh, of an ocean liner a French ocean liner and in they had this ocean liners going to Asia as well and one of them was uh, 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 Le Cambodge uh, that was the name of the ship and it was uh, I think it was built two years before and I decided to. You know, to have I actually look at the at the timetable at that time, and I saw that in 1954 there was indeed a, a whole uh, uh, journey to Asia, and uh, this is why I chose 1954. I think it was also a good time, uh, um, an interesting time in Asia, because Indochina War was uh, going on at that time, uh, so had lots of historical interesting points that I could use for the novel.
0: Well, I think that that part's right. I just was curious because that's that, that's very interesting. So I'm I'm glad I asked you about that.
1: Yeah, very good. Um, I think it's interesting too.
0: <laughs> and is there a link to buy the novel on the website?
1: Yes, indeed, there is a, uh, mm, a link uh, to to the synopsis, information, some uh, some reviews, as well as how to order the book, which is available in print and as a book, print on demand, and as a book.
0: Nice. Well, Amazon does a great thing that way, if that's what you're doing, print-on-demand.
1: Yes, but it's not only a matzana. It's actually also an park, which means that anybody can go to a bookstore, possibly independent bookstore, and can order the book and you should be able to get it.
0: Awesome. Fantastic. And in English? In English, of course, yes. <laughs> very, very good. Well, Lapua, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate you... Making time. I don't even know what time it is there in Germany now, but must be getting kind of late.
1: It's 7 o'clock, so dinner time. Oh, yeah. dinner time. Yeah,
0: <laughs> what's for dinner?
1: For dinner tonight, I think I'm going to have uh, some uh tortellini with uh, mushrooms and uh, cream. Or maybe nice. bechamela. I will see if I want to do the bechamela myself.
0: Yeah. Well, Me, I'd go for the heavy cream. It's much easier. Plus, it gets nice and rich when it cooks down. Mm-hmm. And it goes perfectly with the mushrooms. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so very much. I pr- appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much to you, Dan. It was a very interesting conversation. I always have fun uh, uh, when I'm asked questions so that I can also think about the answers. Oh, good. And,
0: uh, well, get even
1: more inspiration for my stories.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm I'm glad uh-huh. I helped you think a little bit. That's good. It's, that's my goal. So
1: yeah, absolutely. Me,
0: fantastic. Thank All right. Thank,
1: thank you very, very much, Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, folks, that's going to do it. I'll add Lauka's website to the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 187. You can read her micro-stories and order her novel from that site. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. Thanks also to my Patreon supporters. I recently added a compound butter Bonus episode for Patreon subscribers. You can subscribe at culinarylibertariancom slash Patreon. I'm due for another bonus episode, and I think it's going to be uh, making a sauce from a beef stock I made. Next week is another episode into escavier. Looks like garnishes is the next chapter. Maybe I'll start soups, too, in that episode. I'll have to see how everything plays out. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.